You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the after show. This is the bit where we look again at everything you heard in our regular podcast. Some of it we like, some of it we're not so certain about. So we're going to talk about that a bit. I'm Marin Sumset Webb. This week, John Steppick, who's a senior reporter at Bloomberg and author of the Daily Money Distilled newsletter, joins me to discuss the two panels I did at the end of August as part of the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh. Now, there were two of these, and you can listen to them wherever you get your podcasts on the Marin Talks Money feed. We had some brilliant guests. There were some very interesting themes. But of course, John, you weren't there. I know. I feel bad. But I was attending, I was attending one of my kids' gigs. So, uh, yeah, you just I, I said that. To, you think that's cooler? You think going to your kids' gigs is cooler than, yeah, okay, right, it is. Okay. I think, I think it may be also, I would just say Google the mint sherbets because then I can wind them up about being Nepo babies. <laughs> 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 they can't be Nepo babies, they have to be in the same industry as you. Oh, okay. I thought financial journalism was pretty rock and roll. but No, if your children become pop stars, trust me, it's got nothing to do with you being a senior reporter <laughs> at Bloomberg. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, just for the record, John was invited. He refused to come. He said his children were more important than his career. That's what he said, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, John, you really missed out. We had uh, James Anderson, who used to be the co-manager of Scottish Mortgage, which so many of our listeners hold, and he was fascinating. We had Russell Napier, our favourite strategist. We had Anna McDonald, who's so good on UK small caps. We'll come back to that. We had Jim Mellon, you know, one of the UK's greatest investing gurus. We had Simon Evans, a very funny comedian, although we did have to edit some bits of him out, I think, in the end. Or maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't edit out everything we should have. Who knows? Um, anyway, so it was fantastic. And a couple of themes came up again and again and again in the conversations. And they were, and let's talk about the UK, state of the UK, investing in the UK, et cetera. Jim Mellon was really interesting on that. And you and I have both written about that recently. So we'll come back to that. Um, but also a lot on big government, mm-hmm. uh, the role of government, the extent to which government should be involved in everything, the way that risk has been socialised in particular uh, since the great financial crisis and then socialised again and again and again uh, during the pandemic and how we're now in a situation where the role of the state really is very different or perceived to be very different to the role of the state 10, 15 years ago and how that in turn means that taxes in the UK can only go up. 
which of course is interesting in that, you know, I've written about this a lot over the years, that in the main, it's always been incredibly hard in the UK to get taxation as a percentage of GDP up over 36, 37% and keep it there. Mm. But it looks like one of our other guests was Paul Johnson from the IFS. He's just, just brilliant. So interesting. And, uh, you know, he said, well, it has to. Doesn't matter if it's been difficult in the past. There's no choice. We have to get tax revenues up because otherwise we can't pay for social care, uh, for the triple lock, for net zero, uh, for, you know, the nightmare that is the NHS, et cetera. There's no choice here. So we had a lot of conversations around those things and it was kind of depressing, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry I missed it. It sounded great. And, and the guests are, I mean, it's a, it was a stupendous lineup. Um, I thought I thought Paul Paul was very interesting, and I thought one of the things that was interesting is that he sort of seemed um, like on the one hand, yeah, there was this kind of thing, there is no option but big government, and on the other hand, he was saying that politicians he he was actually quite an advocate for they should stop doing stuff and just let everything settle for a while um, which is clearly way beyond what they're do you think capable that of doing ex-prime ministers are the most disappointed group of people in the world <laughs> in that they arrive they walk through the door of number 10 going yes finally i can implement my ideas and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do this and then they look around and realize that actually they can't really do any of those things it's not the power is not really with them doesn't well, rest with them in the way they thought it did somebody had a few weeks to do it to be fair yeah, no, something <laughs> a longer term than others yes i mean yeah, i don't know whether that prime minister is the most disappointed or the rest of us are most disappointed about that but um uh i, I think there's two things if you read tony blair's memoirs one of the things he's disappointed about i think is he wasn't there for much longer because he kind of feels he learned on the job and could do more and i think we probably all feel that after we've left a job I, the, the other thing i suppose i think is um yes you can't it is quite difficult but i do have i do think governments can make a difference over a long term i think one of the things that is problematic about you know, our politics and so on is that you know you'll get prime ministers or chancellors or whatever saying you know, i'm going to make the economy grow next year or you know i'm going to transform the education system in three years i'm going to level up in 10 years or what have you these things take decades yeah, yeah. but government can make a big big difference i mean part of the reason that our growth over the last 15 years has been terrible has been down to government policy quite clearly been down to government policy but they can't turn it around this year or possibly even within the term of a parliament but if you get competition policy right education policy right infrastructure investment right um a planning policy uh you know, times three right then in 10 years time we'll be a bit better off there's this great quote which i don't know if and i kind of thought that the, really the most telling thing was that even someone who was sort of saying well actually we do need this tax take was sitting there saying but the state should try to stop doing so much and should stop messing about um, and you know and, I mean there is to, to my mind there are some sort of things we could at least look at um, you know I mean like the triple lock is quite a good example it's like I, I am not I am not happy about the way that this is constantly framed as you know, kind of intergenerational warfare, um, and I've no, you know, I, I don't like the way that we we kind of uh, we kind of have the conversation now, where you know, like twenty years ago, everyone pitied pensioners, and now everyone hates them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what I would say is that the triple lock now is kind of stupid. It's like we should have it change. It should be a single lock. It should be a single lock to CPI, where a floor of zero percent 
so that the state pension is never actually cut. But if we've decided that it's big enough in real terms now, there's no reason to you know raise it with wages, for example, which is probably what's going to happen this year. You know, there's, there's no reason that state pensions should get a real terms pay rise, um, particularly at a time whenever everyone essentially seems to agree that it's now generous enough. Um, so how about we just get rid of the other two locks and kind of like put that one in? Um, I mean, that's that's a really minor, easy move. It doesn't require spending any more money. It would save a fortune over the longer run relative to what it's going to be. Um, I mean, and that's just that's just like that's just one idea. You know, it's not. I don't see that this stuff is quite as the real thing is the lack of political courage. Because yeah, I mean, somebody will complain about it and yeah. you know a headline somewhere. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that one of the other things we talked about in terms of easy wins in terms of spending is the extraordinary amount of money that the government gives to other semi-governing bodies, gives mm. to, you know, we talked before about, didn't we, about um, overproduction of elites in the UK, etc., on a different podcast with Peter Turchin. And, you know, it is absolutely extraordinary when you sit down and look at it, the amount of money that is handed over the go- by the government to vast bureaucratic organisations to fight the government. Yeah. And, you know, we have the opposition for that. We have an opposition in Parliament to fight the government. We don't need the state to give large amounts of money to other organisations to fight the government. So this is another one of those things that came up a couple of times in these conversations that, uh, you know, money just flows all over the place, all sorts of, of, of places you don't really expect. And it doesn't necessarily need to. Yeah. And also the other thing I would raise was uh, reading the transcripts. Uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, business getting into politics and how that was bad. And I agree with that. But business is still much more accountable than the actual lobby groups that are causing the majority of the problems in the first place. Um, you know, it is kind of like the third sector um, and the, the kind of charity groups that have become, you know, essentially kind of like political wings for certain particular kind of uh, like issues. Um, and and the, the businesses all kind of follow suit in a semi-reluctant sort of mostly perpetrated by their HR departments to justify their existence kind of way. But as soon as, you know, you hit a, a hurdle like rising interest rates, I mean, you look at how fast everyone's rowing back on ESG from a corporation point of view now that it's no longer as politically popular in the States, for example. Yeah, and no longer um, so easy to make money of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the good thing about businesses is, is if nothing else, they are always accountable to the bottom line. So if they do things that are too stupid, then most of the time that will have an impact on the bottom line and they have to roll back from that. Whereas the, you know, the, the charitable and the NGO sector is, is not at all accountable in that front. And it's the amount of money that's going to them is not very visible. I mean, there was a really interesting... Um, I mean, Rory Stewart is obviously a, a guy who's. You know, I, was, I, mean, I I doubt very much that I'm on the same political kind of like him uh, wavelength as him, but he's just written a book, and one of our Bloomberg colleagues reviewed it this morning, and he was saying that he's he's kind of pointing things out about the lack of you know political courage and governance by headline, and also pointing out that you know during the period when everyone was complaining about austerity, now you can take that term austerity with a pinch of salt, but the point he was making was that. The, the the budget spent on the overseas aid uh, department like shot up in real terms at the same time as everything domestic was getting cut, and you're kind of like, well, you know, that this it's 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 that kind of thing. It's like there there is money, 
you know, there are savings to be had. The NHS is definitely not the most efficient way to run a healthcare system. Now, now, don't you dare say a thing like that about our <laughs> NHS. I won't have it, not on this podcast. It's okay, I'm just clapping. Stop that. Now, listen, there was a really interesting part in the pod, in the, um, the conversation that Pamela has on the second day about the NHS, about exactly that. And I think it was Jim, someone started talking about the weight mm. loss drugs, right? And, um, you know, I, I just want to say something about, um, innovation that everyone here will be familiar with the new drugs, which are the weight loss drugs, Wegov and Ozempic and all that sort of stuff, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly at the moment. The biggest selling drug in history, uh, until about two years ago was Humira, which is used uh, for autoimmune disease, particularly rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and uh, it sold $14 billion a year at its peak. It's about to go off patent. These drugs next year will sell more than $100 billion between the two companies. That's unbelievable. And they're having these positive effects that are radiating so much so that probably everyone in this country over the age of 40 should be taking them. They reduce heart risk, they reduce obesity, they reduce diabetes, they reduce all the things that are costing the NHS so much money. So you want another optimistic thing. It's that we have the potential in the next 10 or 20 years using some drugs that are here and now to take the strain off the NHS, to not have people waiting in corridors in the NHS because they won't be obese, they won't have cardio disease, they won't have the cancer. And I am so interested in this, in, in that, you know, one of the biggest expenses for the NHS is obesity. You know, already at the moment, I thought 25% plus of the UK population is obese, another 38% or say are overweight. Look, the US and it's even worse. And, you know, we know we know that that's not going to go away by itself. There's uh, every diet book in the world, every bit of advice you can possibly get. It's just not going to happen that all those people who are troubled by obesity are suddenly going to be not obese anymore. We know that's not going to happen, particularly with the huge power of big food and their horrible processed foods, etc. And the way our diets have changed, people will not become, we're not going back to the 1970s in terms of BMIs, right? No, no. And 10% of the NHS budget is spent on diabetes and complications from diabetes. That's going to be 17, 18% in, in a decade or so. And obesity, as you know, is linked to, linked to cancers, to heart disease, to dementia, to depression. I don't know, name anything else. It's linked to almost everything that is thoroughly unpleasant for the patients and thoroughly unpleasant for uh, the NHS and, of course, anyone attempting to finance the NHS. Now, if you can give everyone a drug, that will mean that they drop 15% of their body weight in a year. And every year for five years or however, however much weight there is to lose. That's an absolute miracle. Transformative for people's lives, transformative for the NHS, and hence transformative for the public finances. Transformative for uh, the way people work. Think about the number of people we have on disability. Imagine if all that went away. And, hmm. crucially, transformative for big food. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I mean, I think that we Wegovy and uh, Ozempic are, like just you know they've got the real potential to be hugely transformative um i mean it's also like the booze industry uh one of our colleagues was pointing out recently that um you know because it it seems to kind of like block all cravings not just cravings for food like you know if you if you get a problem with gambling then you stop wanting to gamble and things like that so you know i think it could be absolutely amazing yeah. Yeah, well, there has been some, I saw a bit of research on it from Morgan Stanley the other day. I was telling you about it, that once people start taking these drugs, I mean, I think the, the you know, the sample is very small at the moment, so we mustn't get too carried away, but they snack less 
And when they cut back on food, people are not cutting back on vegetables and steak. They're cutting back on high sugar, high fat, really processed food, i.e. high margin food. You know, they're cutting back on the high margin stuff. There's a big risk in there for the food companies. I'm not sure they're taking that seriously. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And well, yeah, I, mean, I suppose, what, I suppose you could say, oh, no, the tax base will be in trouble then. But it's, uh, there'll be no more vices to tax. <laughs> well, that's fair. But, you know, we don't tax big food any extra, do we? No. So it doesn't no. actually make, does, what difference does it make to the tax man if we eat a big pile of vegetables or a big pile of processed food? Let me think through that one. I haven't thought through that one yet, but I will. Um, you know, I was just thinking that this is, this might be good for the NHS, might then be good for the taxpayer, might, you know, even be good for, I don't know, people who reduce fresh food as opposed to, um, processed food. Yeah, be, I mean, it'd be great. And I mean, I know, I'm sure this was said jokingly, but the thing was, yeah, if, if, if people don't die of obesity, they'll just live longer and die of something else. He did, yeah. Paul, Paul was absolutely, Paul Johnson was absolutely not convinced by, by the whole weight loss drugs will transform the world thing. When the NHS was founded, um, it was treating large numbers of people with um, infectious diseases, which COVID apart is no longer a big part of the issue. People are surviving those, are surviving older. Um, uh, actually, uh, heart disease is down a lot, but we're treating a lot more people with cancer and dementia and so on. The problem with health is if you save them from this stuff, the buggers go and get something else later on. And often it can be even more expensive. If someone dies at 40, it's cheap. Um, uh, whereas, you know, if they live to 90, then they're going to be expensive. So I'm, I'm actually less optimistic about, I mean, about you know, the, the long run effects um, on the NHS of this, because, you know, I, I seriously, completely people... Disagree. Jim Mellon very much was. So there was a, you know, a little bit of friction in there. Now, you know, our panels always have a little friction. So that was, that was interesting. But I, I was very taken by this idea that um, that you know a drug can transform life and I know that feels a little bit too simplistic and it's bound to end up having you know nasty side effects no one's thought of yet because that's just the way but if it didn't this could be amazing and also I mean it's got to increase people's health spans as well and how could that possibly be bad I I mean yeah you know if I say you had the 10 years to everyone's working life you know in a in a positive way rather than that oh god I've got to work for another 10 years kind of thing um, I don't really see how, I mean, this is the whole point, ultimately, of the human endeavour, isn't it? To, to live longer and healthier, um, I so, would you say. Know, it, could, it could transform our, uh, our productivity numbers. Yeah. It could, if you think about uh, companies and the number of sick days that people take and that kind of thing and the difficulties of working when you don't feel great, I mean, a lot of this stuff could change. Be fantastic. Yeah, you know, we talk about pills, but, you know, like, obviously, antibiotics and vaccines are the things that, you know, the other health measures that kind of transform things. So it's, you know, this this could be something similar, given the, the scale of the obesity problem. You know, we're constantly yeah. told how bad it is. Yeah, and how, and how obviously, how appallingly, unbelievably difficult it is to to stop being obese. You know, no point in pretending it's easy. It quite clearly isn't. So if a drug can sort it out and uh, help everybody, yeah. fantastic. Now, we should move on from this. I, I can't quite see where we're going to get hate mail on this, but I'm feeling hate mail. Um, <laughs> the other thing that came up, uh, because I did ask everybody, where would you invest? You know, what are you going to buy now? And we heard a lot about the, the different sectors, etc. But there was some agreement across the board that UK equities are really kind of okay. And Jim Mellon, who is, is always very interesting on investment, did say towards the end, he said, uh, the UK market is the cheapest in the world and you should get out there and buy UK Investment Trust trading on a discount to their net asset value. Do that, he said. I, I was talking to Sandy about it earlier on and I think the UK is the cheapest market in the world and I'd buy UK Investment Trusts that are selling at a discount to their fundamental 
uh, values. And one of the things that's not appreciated about the United Kingdom, apart from, and you made a very good point, by the way, about the vulnerability of British companies being to take over, but we are also huge investors in other countries. So it works both ways. We're a much bigger creditor nation than we are a debtor nation. So, you know, that we have very large investments overseas and particularly in our listed companies, which are, I think the FTSE 100 is 75% overseas mm -hmm. revenues, which is fantastic. So invest in the UK and look, anyone... Who so I went away to have a look at uh, the discounts on investment trusts and see where they were because, you know, I read about this stuff a lot, but I haven't taken full attention into exactly where they were. And it turns out that, you know, we are, have got the average investment, the average discount on investment trust at the kind of levels where you usually see a fairly mammoth rebound afterwards. So at the kind of levels we saw in, uh, in March 2003, June 2016, and back in the financial crisis, etc. So, you know, nasty troughs and good returns after that. We're knocking around those levels at the moment. And at the same time, UK equities are very cheap. So you've got a bit of a double whammy there in that if there is to be a turnaround and you're holding investment trusts that hold UK equities, you get the rise in the, in the net asset value and you also get the closing of the gap between the net asset value and, uh, and the share price. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, the only thing I'd add to it is that, you know, having been writing about this for about a year now, um, I would say it's noticeable that most other analysts or a large number of kind of mainstream normal investment banking analysts are now kind of saying, you know, you know, regardless of what, you know, you think of the UK, et cetera, et cetera, it's kind of, it is cheap. And there's a sort of, even the ones who aren't kind of, you know, that's the remain bearish on it are kind of like, well, you know, you can't deny it's cheap. You know, it's just, it's going to be cheap forever or that's, they've kind of got some sort of excuse. Um, but like Goldman Sachs was putting out something today that basically said that, you know, with dividends and buybacks added together and throw in essentially kind of de-equitization process that nobody's been issuing new shares, that the kind of, the UK market, the large caps at least are now yielding about 6%. But I mean, that's pretty much inflation now. And that's before you throw in any, uh, well, okay, let's not take the capital gains for granted. But, you know, um, it's 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 clearly cheap. It's just what, what might change it. I mean, I said, well, the Bank of England might change it because, you know, if they turn around and decide to stop raising interest rates a little bit earlier than everyone expects, which I think is quite possible depending on what happens with wages and inflation in the next, you know, week. Um, that that could be a trigger, you know. Something that people could start saying, "Oh, actually, well, maybe it's fine then." Oh, they come to us in the end, don't they, John? Eventually, yeah. Eventually. <laughs> Was there anything else in in the conversations that really caught your eye that we should talk about before we say goodbye? Uh, actually, there was one minor thing mm. um, about university. The way you say that is making me feel nervous. <laughs> no, it's just, no, it's the thing that, um, again, it was, I think it was Paul that was talking about it and yeah. talking about like the number of students going to uni. And uh, yes, Paul and Simon, because Simon was basically saying, if I know it was, it was all them, because Richard brought up the lecturers don't get paid enough. And then Simon said, yeah, but if he's a, you know, a media studies lecturer, then he doesn't deserve to get paid. Um, and then Paul was talking about the number of people who go to uni. <laughs> Can I make a, just a very quick observation about the lecturer who gets 45k and what a disaster it is and we should invest more in education. I think 
everyone would like to see people uh, trained in the skills that Jim describes in, in, in nuclear fusion and, and biotech, but there has been an eruption in the last few years of worthless degrees of, of people accruing student debt, coming out into the real world, finding that nobody cares about gender studies. And, I think um, I find a lot of people care really about gender studies. For the next 10 years as they try and pay off debt and... and they have a, a burning, souring sense of entitlement and resentment towards the state that duped them into this. You get elite overproduction if you don't get the Taiping Rebellion. At the very least, you get, you know, um, identity politics and all this crap. And, and you really got to try and refocus on what are the skills we actually want to teach people. And then I think you might find the lecturer's wages naturally rise. And the thing that kind of got me slightly was the idea that uh, well people who graduate tend to get paid more and therefore they should be paying for the privilege to go to uni and I just kind of thought that was interesting because that's a complete reversal of the way that society used to think about going to uni as I understand it it's like whenever 1 in 20 people went to university and there were like I don't know like 10 unis in the whole country it's like we not only paid for their fees, but we also paid for their drinking money on top of it in the form of a grant. Because the whole point was that that top 5% were meant to be the ones who went off and did kind of difficult jobs and contributed a lot to society. And that's also why their kind of salaries ended up being higher than everyone else's. I mean, I think I'm right in thinking that that was the basic idea behind why taxpayer? Why you know the mass of taxpayers should have supported a small group of people to go to uni, um, and then of course like you know we all sort of said, oh well, why shouldn't everyone be able to go to uni? And then it's like, okay, well now you have to pay for it, but now it's because you get paid more, you should be paying for going to uni, as if it's well the excess money that you make by having gone to uni should then be clawed back by the state. It's kind of, it's just, it's a really flawed way of thinking about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, there is that, whole, and that whole conversation's happening a lot just now. I see it a lot. It's like, oh, this, this job only pays this much. That's terrible. It should be higher. And it's kind of, well, well who's going to, who's going to make that higher? You know, is, are you saying that the state should mandate what everyone gets paid now according to, which particular job is flavour of the month and who is seen as the most moral worker. So I, th I think I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, is this, this big government thinking has invaded almost everyone's minds. Um, you know, it's like the market should be setting wages and it should be setting wages on the basis of what kind of jobs are most valued by society in terms of you know, the, you know the need for them and the supply and demand thing and that's why you know I mean the whole thing was about Adam Smith in the first place that's it's the only way to allocate resources efficiently so she was trying to roll back this thinking that uh, you know there's some sort of arbiter in the sky that that should be deciding wages as opposed to you know just supply and demand really yeah well, wage and price controls, they haven't got a great history, have they? They haven't. And uh, and yeah, well, that's the thing. There was a guy writing about it in the FT the other day, su suggesting it as a good idea. And he used to be on the MPC. And he's that now was, in the yeah. Jeremy Hunt. That was, so, yeah, we, the, we, that was one of the worst columns I've ever read. That was terrible. Absolutely terrible. And also one of the worst ideas I've ever had. And God, there's a low bar for that. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing you would have... I mean... Maybe he expected it from Jeremy Corbyn, but even then, at least Jeremy would have just said, I think 
I think, you know, wages should be at these levels and no higher. You know, as opposed to having some really kind of like twisted, weird way of framing it through excess taxes and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, but so yeah, anyway, so that, was it. Yes, that wasn't really minor, was it? That was a kind of very. That wasn't minor at all. It wasn't minor at all. It was absolutely <laughs> huge, huge. Um, and we did have an interesting talk in there as well on the on the panel about uh, uh, degrees that have value and, and degrees that do not have value and and how that works. Lily came to fisticuffs there as well, actually. Thankfully, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't quite as harmonious as I have fixed in my mind those panels. I think we better leave it there. Now, listen. If you haven't listened to both of those conversations, you really should listen to them because they were they were incredibly interesting. We haven't talked much about the one with Russell and James and in, in this conversation with John, but they were absolutely fascinating. A little bit more uh, intellectual, maybe a little bit more for the experienced investor than than the second panel was, which is a bit more accessible. But if you're interested in investing at all, you have to listen to James and Russell talking because they really tell you what the world's going to look like over the next decade or give you a version of what the world is going to look like over the next decade that is more likely than uh, versions you might hear from other people. Um, anyway, there we are. John, will you be coming next or will you have more parenting to do? Oh, I, I will I will go out of my way to come next year. <laughs> Bring the kids. <laughs> hey, They'll be famous by then. They can sing afterwards. Oh, that's how I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> yeah, and we can dance and have drinks. Or maybe they can, they, can, they, can, they can be our, uh, what's it called, uh, our pre, what's it called, when someone plays before you go uh, Opening on. act. Opening act. They like can it, be yeah. our opening act. <laughs> Tell the kids, and you heard it here first, everybody, sign up for tickets next year. They sold out in about <laughs> 10 minutes this year, and if there's going to be singing and dancing as well, they're going to sell out really fast next year. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money, The After Show. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb, alongside John Stepick. It was produced by Summer Sadi, additional editing by Blake Maples. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.